Before I begin, I would like to ask everyone here if you would lift up your hearts to the Lord one more time, asking for his assistance, because we cannot accomplish these things without his help. The Holy Spirit will guide us. We must believe that because it is true. He alone can open our eyes. Let's go to the Lord. Holy Father, we ask now that Christ be revealed to us. We ask that your word be made plain. We are not asking to be given special things, even though everything in your book is special. But we ask that Christ be revealed to us that we might become more like him. Give us, Father, that which no flesh can give to us. We depend wholly upon you. Holy Spirit, help us. We pray this in our Lord's name. Amen. 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 I would like to read the three verses that we did last week because we are going to continue the message that we began as far as an introduction to the book called The Revelation of Jesus Christ. Verses 1 through 3, I will be reading from the ESV, the English Standard Version. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place, he made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it. For the time is near. I've always been afraid to preach through the book of the, of the Revelation of Jesus Christ. I have, I have never done it before. I have been raised in a certain school of theology that, uh, that is called a premillennial uh, view. We're going to get into that today is what these different approaches to how to look at it hermeneutically, which is a big word It just means how to interpret and I must confess that I am no longer premillennial. Well, the story goes like this, uh, just as an illustration. I met a missionary one time, and he was meant to be bragging when he said this. I've not changed what I've believed for the past 20 years. And he was expected to get a pat on the back because he was persevering, that he was not going to change the Word of God. And uh, what went through my head immediately, and I'm not saying that the Lord opened my mind to do this understanding, but I said, in 20 years, you have learned nothing. That is, you have not changed your mind about one thing. And so what I'm going to challenge you with is that let the word of God change your minds about what the world says is true. Now, I'm not asking everyone here to change what you believe. I'm just going to do the best I can to present what the Word says. Last week we looked at the doctrine and we said this, if we with sincere hearts ask the Holy Spirit to reveal, and I'm using the word reveal like uncover, like apocalypse, remember what we talked about, to reveal the Lord Jesus Christ to us. If we pray this prayer, God will answer this prayer. How do I know that? Because He has promised to do so. He has promised, ask and it shall be given, seek and you will find, knock and it shall be opened to you. Now I'm going to expand this 
goal to achieve. I'm going to expand it a little bit more. I want, to, I want you to look at this doctrinal goal this way. The idea that the revelation of Jesus Christ is only at the end time is not quite complete. You see, the revelation of Jesus Christ is in two different parts. You have a first advent, but you also have a second advent. Now, the word advent just means to, um, to arrive. Christ came into this world at the first advent with the purpose of becoming flesh that he might die for our sins in an atoning work of atonement to save us, to justify us. Now, that was the first time that the Lord was revealed. But I want you to remember that this type of revelation was not made to the world. If they had known who he was, they never would have crucified him. You see, the revelation of Jesus Christ in his first advent was performed by the Holy Spirit on those believers who were then able to see that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, came, died for their sins, and they received him. Now that is an apocalypse. That is an un a, a revealing. And so we have to say, that's the first revealing, but it is to believers. Now that revealing has not been made to unbelievers. Technically, we'd have to say that the first advent was only an apocalypse to God's people. Okay? But to those who believe this first revelation is in fact, is better understood as the regeneration of the heart, the new birth. The new birth and regeneration of the heart is the first apocalypse. I look at it this way. Christ said, even now, the dead will hear and will live. I want you to remember what he said. Even now, in the preaching of the gospel, there will be a raising of the dead from sin to live, living life in a holy presence of God, living in them and they walking before the Lord. The first advent removes the mystery of what the gospel was all about in the Old Testament. See, the Old Testament taught the gospel, but it was hidden. It was a mystery. But then when Christ came, this mystery was revealed and opened. So let me restate what I want our doctrinal goal to be. The first advent, that is the revelation of Jesus Christ, was required in revealing or uncovering who the Savior is by a direct intervention of the Holy Spirit in the work we call regeneration or the new birth. That is an apocalypse. The second revealing of Christ will be in his second coming when he comes again. Not only will his people receive him with gladness, but Christ will also be revealed to an unbelieving world. At which time all unbelievers even those that pierced him will see him, and they will be judged. For unbelievers, this apocalypse truly is eternally catastrophic for the soul. Remember last week, I wanted to have that little word association with you. 
When you think of the apocalypse, I wanted you to think of comfort. But there is a truly apocalyptic view as far as the catastrophe that will engulf, that will cause the hearts of men to fail and to melt. They will literally, and I'm saying that because this is an apocalyptic message, they will literally hope that the rocks would fall on them and cover them to hide them from the one who is there to judge their hearts. So, to begin this, we have to say, how do we understand this great book of the Apocalypse? How do we then know how to achieve its purpose that God gave for us? Those two questions. And so I'm going to go over it again, a little bit of review, because I know that there's probably one person, at least one person, who may not remember. Okay? That's just, and everyone else, just be patient with that one person, okay? So last week, we talked about what the scriptures uh, were like, uh, are like, when it comes to, you, you know, if you look at this book right here, this is really not just one book. This is a collection. This is like a library of books. There's many books in here. And some of these books are historical by their nature. They record the history of God's people. They record the biographies of men. All types of things are, uh, are there for our admonition. Joshua, Judges, First and Second Samuels. These are historical books predominantly, but within those books, there's other types of writing too. We also have books that are by nature the law, primarily, such as Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They are the outline, they became the outline of the Old Covenant, which is the shadow of the New Covenant. Okay, So there's also books in, the, in, in, this, in this library that we would call poetry. Poetry are the stanzas that many times are set to music. They're used in worship. And so we have 150 of these. They're called Psalms. There's also uh, poetry written. Poetry that are beautiful. They're really, this type of poetry is just, a, it just grabs your heart. Read the book of Job and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and see if it does not give you the wisdom that it's designed to convey. So you have books that are designed to apply principles to make a man wise. We also have the Gospels and the Acts, which are very similar to the idea of a biography of the Lord Jesus Christ and referring to how his atoning work was accomplished and then what happened by the apostles in preaching that gospel. Lastly, there are many letters written by apostles that are recorded that are sent to churches, congregations to address issues or to explain uh, you know, what the gospel is all about. The epistle to the Romans, the church at Rome, there is un it's unparalleled in its ability to explain the gospel. It is the deepest theology you'll ever see. It's better than any book ever written by man. If you want to know what the gospel is, the book of Romans is the epistle to read. But there are many other epistles that address these issues. Some epistles are written to individuals that perhaps the apostle Paul was mentoring, like Timothy or Titus. But there are other books in this, in this library that are just prophetic, overwhelmingly. They may have history, they may have poetry, they may have wisdom, but prophetic information is almost its core, such as Isaiah, such as Jeremiah, such as Ezekiel. But then again, there's also another type of writing called apocalyptic. And apocalyptic writing is where God gives a person a vision a vision that they see with their eyes 
and then it must be interpreted as to what they mean. And we gave examples last week, the dreams of Joseph. We also have examples of Daniel. But now we're looking at the Apostle John. Now there are seven huge visions in the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, it's been divided into seven by many theologians, or even by myself, but within even one vision, there is one image after another. And these visions and these images sometimes can be scary, and sometimes we say to ourselves, I don't want to be wrong. I don't know what to do with it. I don't know what it means. And we may be fearful to say, this is what it means. Well, there are examples of how this has been done in the scriptures themselves. And so many times we have to see what the prophets were told by Gabriel or the angels. And they will clearly say, oh, remember that vision you had? This is what it means. And many times we should take that example and learn how to interpret the book of Revelation itself. And so with that, I wanted you to understand that I'm here in fear and trepidation. I'm not going to say I know exactly what this means. But I'm going to tell you that there is a great deal of comfort within this book because there are general principles that you cannot miss. <laughs> One of the greatest principles that you can ever get by reading and hearing the book of the Apocalypse of Jesus Christ is that God is on his throne. He has the authority to do what he's going to do. And he is going to warn everyone in this world of what's about to happen. And then he is going to perform those things on this world. Now, if you didn't recognize it, I just went through the seals and the trumpets and the vials and plagues. You see what I'm saying? Let me say it again. God has the authority to do what he says he's going to do. He can break those seals. He has the warning, the trumpet, the preaching of the gospel. It's trumpeting every day. And then comes the actual hand of God upon this world when the plagues are poured out. You see, it's not all just complete mystery. We have to look at it and say, what do you have for us, Lord? I, am, I need your help because of the great persecution we are under. Well, to be forewarned is to be forearmed. And he says, the Apostle John even says, I am with you as your brother, a person who is a co-Christian in tribulation. I am with you in the patient endurance of the saints. This is not a book that's to be discovered by solving a puzzle. When will the Lord come back? Well, let's work through this puzzle and see if we can figure it out. That's not the purpose of the book. In fact, he tells us he comes like a thief. And it will be unexpected. But the key there is to be ready. And how do we do that? To keep these things in our hearts. Let me read that scripture again. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy. Blessed are those who hear it and keep it, keep what is written in their heart. And then, for the time is near. And so with this, we must re realize that we've been given a great, great blessing. Now, before I begin, 
the additional information that I didn't give you last week, I want to remind you of this. Listen to what the Spirit says to the churches and keep your heart focused on it. So, last week we looked at what is, you know, how do we understand the apocalypse, and we're going to continue that theme and help us to understand how to approach the book. Because there are different ways to interpret this apocalyptic vision or the different visions there. And there have been good men throughout history that have done a lot of good work. And it would be too, it would be silly for us not to have read them, not to consider them, not to understand what they are trying to tell us. There is one way of interpreting this book when you look at it and say, well, perhaps everything said in Revelation chapter 1 all the way to Revelation chapter, uh, you know, at the very end, 22, I believe, that it's already been accomplished. It's already been done. There are some people that believe that, perhaps excluding the day of judgment, you know, because they obviously know that that hasn't happened yet. But there are people called preterists. I hope I'm pronouncing that right because, you know, I, I haven't heard that word used very many times, but I've read it many times. There are people that actually believe that most of what is written there is already accomplished. And you may say to yourself, well, that doesn't sound like something I should consider. How can that possibly be? But I want to caution you on that. There are Christians during the time of Nero, Domitian, and other persecuted people that looked at the book of the revelation of Jesus Christ and they said within their hearts, this is it. My goodness, what kind of a beast is Nero? And they even looked at his name and calculated it out. And you know what his name calculated to when it comes to numbers? 666. And when they saw, oh my goodness, look at this city built on seven hills. What else could it possibly be? You know, all these things. Do not look down on someone that says, well, I'm a preterist. I'm just saying that this is something that you should consider, but I am not one of those people myself. But what I am, I'll tell you what I am in a few minutes, okay? <laughs> All right? You just have to wait. There's another view of this where someone says, well, they look at this his, in, in a historic, you know, as far as applying it to history, a historicist. Secular history and religious history can be merged together, taking from the day of Pentecost all the way to the time of Christ. And you may say, well, are you saying that all these events are, can be found in a history book? Well, I've, I've read some people that they have impressed me very much. I mean, you take, uh, take for example, the places where it says, well, this is going to happen in three and a half years. And I'm thinking, three and a half years? How, in that, how can that be? But when you apply the principle that one day is according to one year, then it comes to 1,260 years. And you know what that is? That's the Dark Ages. I'm not saying it is. I'm saying it was impressive. I'm just saying that Men who love God, who love this book, have spent time and said, this is what I see. So is that the right way to approach it? Should we approach it like a preterist? Should we approach it like a historicist? There are also people that say most of this book is in the future. Now that's prevalent. Most people today believe that most of the book called the Apocalypse is in the future. And in particular... It's like seven years that were kind of taken from the Daniel's 70th week in his apocalyptic vision. And they say, 
chapters from four almost all the way to the end. That happens in seven years. Well, that's what I was trained to believe. That's what I was taught. If you want to learn more about that, you can get a book called Things to Come by Dwight Pentecost. I'm not saying get it. I'm saying if you want to know about it. Okay, because I was impressed by his reading because I frankly could not understand how a person could get so much out of the scriptures that really wasn't there. That's impressive. But I want you to understand that I do not want you to look down on someone that is of that persuasion. I was that a long time. And I just want us to be as patient with others as God has been with us. If you have to say to yourself, well, I'm going to make this doctrine a requirement of fellowship with other Christians, then I caution you not to do that. I have a very good friend. He has always been premillennial, always been a futurist, and he is a good man that loves God. That's for you, Lester, okay, if you ever listen to this. I mean, that man is a precious man to me. There is one more school called, and I don't know why it's called this, called the Idealist, but it has to do with taking the principles that are taught and then saying these principles can help us understand what these visions mean. I'm more like that. But you see, being an idealist isn't enough. When I say that, it isn't enough. You see, because I can be an idealist and still take some of the Praetorist ideas. I can be an idealist and still take some of the Historicist ideas. I can be an idealist and still take some of the Futurist ideas because there are some things that are still in the future, folks. Believe it or not, God has not judged the world yet. The great white throne judgment of God has not happened yet. I know that's in the future because we're still here. There are other things that have already happened. There are other things that are happening. So how am I going to recommend that you approach the book called The Apocalypse? Well, I'm going to recommend that we approach it with the idea that there are principles to learn. And there's only one real way to do this, and that is look for the principles that it teaches. But I'm not saying ignore the rest. In the time of the apostles, John, and all the ones that were there, there were no doubt Christians that looked around them and were comforted by this book. Mm -hmm. And that comfort was real. It was genuine. When men and women and children were being fed the lions by Nero, this book comforted them. Okay? When we looked at men and women during the Dark Ages that were attacked because they believed in an imputed, I mean, in, a, in an imputation of righteousness, they were hunted down in the hills, the Voldoi, the, uh, uh, the ones that are up in the, in the mountains of northern Italy. They were hunted down and they were slaughtered. These men went through great tribulation. I could tell you about stories that would just turn your stomach about how much they suffered. And are we to say to them, you cannot take this book and receive comfort from it. No. They received a great deal of comfort from this apocalyptic book. 
even today, there's going to be nations that will rise up and will persecute God's people. And what are we to say? That has nothing to do with these visions. I think not. I think that there is a general principle that there is a spirit of antichrist in this world now and it is empowered by the dragon and he is warring against the saints of God. And the principle there is as clear as the daylight in our every day that we walk. It's there, easily seen. We don't have to see some mark on Gorbachev's you know, forehead and say, is that the mark of the beast? That has nothing to do with anything. There is a mark on every human being that hates God that reflects the anti-Shema. Okay, you may not know what that is, but it's a little bit like this. The Jew would put the scriptures on his forehead and on his hand. Okay? And the world does the same thing with the dragon. We'll get into that later. It'll be fun. And it'll be scary. But it'll be enlightening, I guarantee you. There's also a different approach to the book of Revelation in a hermeneutical aspect. Now, that's just a big word. It just means how to interpret it. And it has to do with what to do with what we call the millennium. Okay, the millennium. Now, if you haven't read the book of the Revelation, you need to do that. You need to do that. At the last three chapters, it's going to introduce you to the idea that there's going to be a thousand years where Jesus Christ is going to reign. He's going to be king for a thousand years. And the three main schools there are premillennialism, postmillennialism, and all millennialism. Now, the premillennial school of thought simply states this, that Christ will return physically and then begin a 1,000-year reign. This is the popular view today. Movies are made about it. Novels are written about it. Uh, it's, it's like you can't even pick up a Christian novel that's apocalyptic in nature and not get that doctrine out of it. Almost all these things are very prevalent today. There's another school of thought that says when the Lord comes back, it'll be after the church is successful in bringing this world under a theocracy and that the church will reign a thousand years and then the Lord will come back and then he'll take his throne. And you may say, well, why would anyone believe that? A lot of very good theologians believe that. Jonathan Edwards. One of my heroes of the faith believed that. Now, I would hope to believe if Jonathan Edwards was today was alive today, he may rethink that. Because you see, to order to believe that, you'd have to say that the church itself, with the help of the Holy Spirit, will bring this world under subjection to God and Christ. That is one other way. Now, there is another way called all millennialism. And it's not because the word all means to negate and we don't believe or I don't believe that there will be a millennium. I do. I do. I believe that there will be a reign of the Lord Jesus Christ in his kingdom. This simply states, like the Gospels tell us, that the kingdom of God is at hand. Now, that's a phrase that means close. It's an idiom. But it also literally means within your grasp 
Or if you reach out, you can hold on to it. The kingdom of God is at hand. Now one view of how to interpret this book says, it was that close and then they missed it. No. The Lord Jesus Christ did not miss anything. We have the kingdom of God within our hearts and he reigns there. We are ambassadors of Jesus Christ in this world. And what the world sees and what we see is apocalyptic. It looks like this to the world, but we know that the Bible says that about it. You'll see this when the visions are being read to you out loud. You'll see. It says, Behold, there is the line of the tribe of Judah. And then John turns and looks, and you know what he sees? A lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world. The world sees Jesus Christ as a defeated, killed person. But we know he is not that. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. And he reigns in his people. Now that's one way to look at it. The kingdom of God is within us. He comes back and then this kingdom will visibly and physically, after the world is completely annihilated and rebuilt and redone, Christ will be continuing to be our king. So, in my opinion, the amillennial hermeneutical method is the best way to approach this, and I'm going to give you three reasons why. There is more compatibility with existing doctrines that are already explained in the Gospels and in the Epistles as held by those who are reformed in their thinking. Now you may say, well, what do you mean by reformed in their thinking? It's like this. A person who is reformed in their thinking reminds me of a person like Calvin or Luther or someone that says the gospel of Jesus Christ is a work of atonement that's performed by an almighty, holy God, and he gives righteousness to his people. And this type of gospel is what conquers the hearts of men. And with that view, the all-millennials view, will make the, God, the doctrines of the, new, of, the, of the Gospels mesh with the Apocalypse like this. Secondly, there is more compatibility with the overarching high view of God and His sovereignty and His holiness than to those who have a lesser view of God. And who are those that have a lesser view of God? Anyone that believes and works for their salvation. Anyone that believes that the approach of this world should be dualistic, which means that God and Satan are duking it out, and I wonder who's going to win. If you have that view of God, then I suggest, you know, I don't know, buy a, you know, uh, what's that series of books? Left Behind. Buy those. They're great. You'll just be fascinated by it, you know. But I'm telling you right now, the high view of God that's presented in the scriptures will tell us that Jesus Christ is conquering. Mm -hmm. He is going forth to conquer. Mm -hmm. He is accomplishing exactly what he is designed to do. Mm -hmm. He is going to warn everybody, and then the wrath will come. But we will be living in Goshen at the time. You know what I mean by that? You know where Goshen is? That's where the children of Israel remained in Egypt when the plagues 
were everywhere, the lice, the darkness, but it didn't plague them. We will be living in Goshen in this life when the plagues come. Mm -hmm. And when I say when they come, oh my goodness, if you can't see the plagues around us, you truly are blind, aren't you? Mm -hmm. They're everywhere. They're mm -hmm. everywhere. I've read one person concerning the four horsemen of the apocalypse. It's war. It's death. It's famine. And then he said this, pretty much a typical day in the human race. <laughs> yeah. Pretty much a typical day. So what do we do with these things? Yeah. We see that Christ says, be prepared. Be prepared to know and to have the patience and endurance that when we suffer, God is in control. And we suffer for a good reason, for his glory. For his glory. In summary, most of these views do have their own good points. Do not reject other Christians that have different ideas about this. I want us to be, I hate to use this word, a little bit inclusive when it comes to this view of interpreting the apocalypse. But I also want you to understand that there will be a time when we should be contending for the faith. And there will be a time when we should be challenging the faith of other people, of other believers when it comes to their doctrine. But I want to challenge you right now to be as patient with others as God has been with you. Mm -hmm. I want you to do that. The practical application that I want to do before we, before we leave here is this. This passage, and I'm going to read it to you, verse uh, 3 of chapter 1. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and keep it, uh, what is written in it, for the time is near. I don't want to read that verse and just simply say to you, you can cash in on this blessing. All you got to do is read it. You don't even have to understand it. Just read it, you get a blessing. No, I, I think it's more like this. You have to read it, hear it, and keep it keep it. To keep it within your heart is to be ready. Mm -hmm. Is to be ready when these events happen. And you say, well, how do I know when these events happen? It's very easy. Listen. If the shoe fits, wear it. If it looks like a beast or a nation that rises up and attacks Christians, well, when has that ever happened? Oh my goodness, just look at the newspaper. Happens all the time. Mm -hmm. I know of a person that, that she told me this. It was a good, you know, I, had a, I had a good week. No one threw stones at me. You know who that person is. Mm -hmm. There are people that suffer because of their relationship with the Lord. Mm -hmm. There are people who die because of it. Mm -hmm. People live in a little village and they'll have numbers painted on their house. One and two. If you're a Jew, number one, we'll kill you first. Number two, you're a Christian. You're next. And you're telling me that this isn't apocalyptic times? Mm -hmm. That the beast isn't there? Mm -hmm. All these things, we need to come to grips with them. And you may say, well, surely if it's future, is it at hand? They are at hand. Mm -hmm. Reach out and take hold of the promises and of the information that's given to us right here. We need to make it precious to us. 
I want you to consider these things, and then we'll end. What in the world is precious to you right now? What is precious to you? Are the pleasures of the flesh and the comforts of this life the only things that bring you joy? We need to start prioritizing what is the most valuable things in life so that we can prepare to make the right choices when the time comes. Now, please listen. I did not say if the time should come that we should be forced to make a choice between God and between these other things. Do you love me more than these? Who did Christ say that to? Peter. There'll come a life, there'll come a time in your life when they'll say, Look at this. If you do not bow down and worship this, then we'll take away your ability to eat, to live, to move, everything. And all you have to do, it's easy. Just give a nod. It's easy. Just look to the world for your peace and comfort. Don't make the mistake of not doing this prioritizing beforehand. We need to know what is important, and it is God. It is Christ. Mm -hmm. It is living for His glory. Because there will come a time we have to make these choices. Do not mistake or make the mistake of thinking that the events found in this book are something that is not for you. Something that has already happened, it'll never happen again. Something that's in the future and we've never seen it before. These things are happening right now. These things are for us. It is for us. And so right now, as we get in deeper into the book, I want you to have this idea. It is for us. Mm -hmm. Right now. Right now. It's a blessing for us. I challenge you to keep this within your heart. Mm -hmm. And whenever you see the events of this world parallel or mirror or look like these things, and you say, well, is it that thing? If they're tempting you to leave God, it is. Mm -hmm. It is. Mm -hmm. And I'm just going to say this. This is the great interpreting rule that I want you to take home. If the shoe fits, you wear it. It's just, it's just what it is. If there's a principle and power in this world that wants you to leave God, then that's exactly what this is. We're being warned about it. We're being warned about it. So, in conclusion, I want you to remember that we are living in Goshen in a time of the plagues. Mm -hmm. The world is covered in darkness. Oh, no, it's not. I can see everything around me. No, mm -hmm. they're dead in their sins. Mm -hmm. They're living in the dark. They're living without the light of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. They're living in the dark. They're being attacked by one who hates them and wants to consume and destroy their souls. Mm. And what do we do? We follow the Lamb wherever He goes, mm -hmm. and we preach the greatest power on this earth, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. The blood that, shamed, that, that was shed for us, mm -hmm. that is what's going to save sinners. Mm -hmm. I'm telling you, we are more than what we appear. Not because we are great. It's because we are God's people. Mm -hmm. And he's given us this commission to preach 
what changes men's lives and hearts, mm -hmm. and they will be saved. They will be saved. We look like we're nothing, but we have been granted by God's power to go forth and conquer. And I want us to take on that, that, not, that knowledge. Mm -hmm. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we ask now that you would open the eyes of your people and enable us to understand that we are surrounded by tremendous powers by angels that have come to serve your people by the great power of the gospel that we can preach and we can bring down strongholds because of the power of your spirit using the truth to change the hearts of men. Oh, Father, we have been given the great commission to go out and to storm the gates of hell and to lead captivity captive just as you did by preaching to them the great truth of how our Savior died for sinners. And may it look like that we are nothing, but that's okay. We are not looking to be honored. We are looking to serve you with all of our hearts, that we might be your people, to be owned by you, to have you walk among the garden of our hearts. May you be comfortable walking within us with your spirit giving us the same image of Christ, having his seal upon us, the mark of our God upon our forehead and upon our hand to do his will. Father, we pray these things be done for your glory. Amen. Amen.